Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. You're listening to Champagne Sharks. Right now, it's just me, Vita Star. Um, the rest of the sharks, they weren't able to come on right now, but uh, that's all good. We're going to actually do some Black Canon episodes. We've done the White Canon. We're going to do the Black Canon where we watch Black movies and have uh, some commentary around that. That should be coming up soon. But in the meantime, you got me. And right with me now is, he told me not to say doctor. He told me not to say professor. So I'm just going to say I have a, some guy here with a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Who just so happens to be an assistant professor of sociology at University of Texas at Austin. Just so happens to be. Um, this guy, just found him on the internet on Twitter somewhere. This guy named Robert Reese. What's up, Robert? Hey, how you doing? How you doing? I'm um, disappointed that you did not respect my... No, it's fine. <laughs> um, no, Black women don't listen. Good. Haven't you heard? Yeah. Yeah, everybody gets one. <laughs> no, um, you have done a, a lot of research on a lot of topics, um, but the topic that we're going to talk about is colorism and the in-depth research you've done around that regarding not only just, you know, preferences is around marriage, or you actually take it deeper than that. You didn't even talk about preferences, really. You really focus on life opportunities, yeah. which I find to be really fascinating because even in that world of of colorism and having the conversation around colorism you don't really hear about really how color your shade and to, to be clear on what we mean by that and i'll let you define it more specifically in your terms um we're talking about the different shades of black people or what we identify as black people right yeah and many many of these conversations focus on you know whether or not you're fuckable <laughs> right <clears throat> yeah <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to be shy about it. That's what they were um, talking about. No, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm letting you finish. <laughs> but um, we know that the conversation goes deeper than that. I have seen research years ago around prison time and how prison sentences are handed out among Black women, mm -hmm. um, how lighter skinned Black women get less, gets less harsher sentences. And I found that to be interesting. But outside of that, I haven't really seen much research um, or much conversation. I won't say there's no research, but I haven't seen much conversation about colorism in regards to opportunities um, in work, opportunities in marriage, opportunities in almost anything in life. So getting us started, can you define what colorism is and how you did it in your research and how you decided what was light, what was medium, what was dark, and why you got into this type of research in the first place? Okay, yeah. So I think that... <coughs> Uh, definition of colorism that I give to my students is um, that it's a system of stratification that privileges people of color, especially black Americans, as that's what we're talking about, um, with more stereotypically white features like, you know, thinner noses, thinner lips, um, lighter hair, um, lighter eyes, but especially lighter skin tones. Um, privileges those types of people relative to people with more stereotypically ethnic features like, you know, 
big wide noses, um, thick old lips, nappy hair, and uh, all know, my favorite shit. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. All of our favorite things. They hate it. Um, and like, so there are a lot of ways to measure color, right? All of them have limitations because mm-hmm. of you know how skin works, right? Your color isn't the same year round, right? You're probably um, a little light skinned in January, more right. than you are in July, right? Right. Um, and so it's all of the systems that we have to measure it have at least that limitation. That color is a dynamic part of who you are. But generally, um, people use survey data um, and surveys tend to measure color uh, in a variety of different ways, right? Like I use typically the ad- the, the National Study of Adolescent to Adult Health, which is massive um, longitudinal study following 15,000 kids who were adolescents in the mid-90s through today where they're in their 40s. So it interviews the same people every few years. And so you can track what they've been up to over time. And they have a, um, a measure of color there, a five-point scale, where the interviewer, you know, they had people go into these people's homes and interview them um, periodically. And the interviewer would code their color, right? Like one, I think one is the lightest and five is the darkest and they would color, I mean, code how they how they view it, um, which, you know, is kind of subjective. Um, but I mean, color is subjective, right? Like people are viewing this and making decisions about how to treat people based on their subjective perception of what color this person is. And so, like, I mean, the measure is um, kind of subjective, right? But like, we imagine that over a big enough sample that it balances out. Um, and so most of most surveys use a similar, um, a similar measure of color, like an interview of coder interview a coded variable. There are some others that use a photospectrometer, which hmm. is a device that measures how much light reflects off the surface. So you can use that to measure how much light reflects off the skin. And so it'll give you a ostensibly objective value of color, like a number. But I mean, you know, your, your skin is different colors at different parts of your body, right? right. So even then, it's not truly... Like there are limitations and things to account for. If you measure on my forehead, it's going to be different if you measure on my shoulder. It's going to be different if you measure on the inside of my wrist, you know? Well, I have a question then, because I think when we have these conversations around what's light and what's dark, everyone has their own personal view of what that is. So how can we even be objective when most of this is made up in our heads anyway. What I mean by that is you have people who will argue that, for example, Nas is light skin. And then you have people who would argue that he's not light skin. <laughs> right. Um, there are people in my family, depending on wh- who, what side of the family you're standing next to. Someone might say that you're light or you're dark, depending on, well, this side of the family tends to be mostly dark skin. So you're Brown. We're going to call you light. Right. Yeah. So, a lot of this, and on top of that, there are characteristics that we attribute, right? That we've been conditioned to attribute yep. um, to certain skin tones, right? So we talk about like the joke around how light-skinned men may play basketball, right? Or, you know, not, and I mean, beyond just whether or not they are attractive or aren't, whether, whether or not they are or aren't attractive, but even down to how we may, be per- how we may perceive others 
feel about our skin and other skin. What I mean by that, look at children on a playground, right? I worked in schools for many years. It wasn't uncommon to see adults treat the light-skinned girl a certain way, right? She somehow magically becomes the teacher's pet or, you know, is the kid that everyone, you know, assumes she's correct or she's not the one in the wrong in the situation. I've watched this with my own eyes. I've watched it happen from staff of various skin tones, various races even, right? Um, Well, the school is black and Latino. We know Latinos also have a colorism. Same colorism problem. Same colorism problem. Um, So a lot of this is in our heads. A lot of this is subjective. A lot of this is also very blatant. So how do you be objective? Yeah. You're seeing it. Something that (laughs) you know is messing subjective. And the the answer is that we measure it in a number of different ways to try to capture um, that messiness. So the fact that it's hard to definitively say this person is dark skinned and this person is light skinned, except at the far ends of the spectrum, like that's a problem that manifests in the courts, right? When you're talking about the EEOC and trying to sue your employer for um, occupational discrimination, you go to the court, and they are like, I don't fucking know who is light and who is dark, right? I can't legislate this, right? I can't judge I can't judge this. Um, and that's the problem. But for researchers, right, we know that even if I can't put a value on you, Vita, and be like, you are uh, five out of ten on the color scale. I don't have to do that. Because what I, oh, I, thought, you I, was, kn- I thought you was doing one of them Kevin Samuels rankings. Like, you're a five. Like, nigga, what? No, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> I'm no you, you were ten. <laughs> oh, that's um, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but what all we need to know as researchers is the relativity aspect of it, right? So, like, we just need to know that this person, regardless of whether they would be labeled categorically as dark or medium, we just need to know that this person who is darker is receive is seeing more barriers in their life to this person who is lighter, and so we can do. Like when we run analysis where we grade color on a spectrum, right? So one to five, we find that the gradation, the darker you are, the worse your life outcomes are. And that is consistent whether you use interviewer um, rated color, which is the subjective like eye test, whether you use a photospectrometer, right? Which is, you know, more objective, but still, you know, whether you use... um, there are people who use you've seen that um the picture with the with the 10 hands i forget what it's called but that that color range test like there are some um it, my grandmama used to use the paper bag test <laughs> yeah <laughs> the paper bag test and somehow i'm sure the numbers come out the same the numbers come out the same right the studies always show Regardless and for the record, not my grandma. I was color. joking. Just want people to think my grandma was a colorist. <laughs> when you stay off the grandma, nobody messes with you. Both my grandmas grandma. were totally not on that shit, but yeah. But we know that no matter how we measure color, um, lighter skinned people tend to receive, tend to have much, much, on average, easier <clears throat> lives than, than darker skinned people. In fact, and this is always the most damning part to me like we talk about colorism a lot we talk about colorism like in um the ways that you mentioned earlier right we talk about fuckability talk about who's dating who right who's getting roles in hollywood which ultimately sometimes boils down to fuckability right so but when we start looking at other measures of life outcomes we realize that color is so colorism is much much worse 
than people ever knew or than most of us ever imagined. You mentioned the study of Black women in prison sentences. And so a few years ago, there was a follow-up of Black men. And what they found is that once you control for, um, you know, criminal history type of crime, that type of stuff, that light-skinned men had prison sentences that were indistinguishable from white men. The entire burden of inequality in the length of prison sentences was dark-skinned black men. Wow, that yeah. surprises me. Right. That so like, well, hold on, don't you can't. See, this is my problem with experts. Y'all do this shit. Y'all drop bombs and they'd be like, "Oh, let's just move." On. No, that's not. We're not doing that. Um, <laughs> that's you're blowing Fair my enough. mind right now. You just blew my mind, and I'm sure many other people's mind. Indistinguishable. I wasn't. I wouldn't be surprised if you said a little different or they have a little, you know, a little less sentencing or less harsh or whatever. I definitely would not have been surprised. But to say indistinguishable. Yeah. That's yeah. a different, that's a different level of, I don't even like the word privilege because you're getting incarcerated. So it's not a privilege, yeah, exactly. right? <laughs> um, but that's a different way of looking at that because I would have assumed it was pretty much similar, but not not indistinguishable, you know? And the reason why I say that, though, is because if you go out in the world, I've never seen a light-skinned Black guy not get picked up as a light-skinned Black guy and by white people. White people can usually see right away you're not one of them. Yeah. My dad was light-skinned. And I can tell you, yeah. he definitely went through shit as a Black man. So mm -hmm. it's blowing my, my mind. also light-skinned, by the way. So you probably get it. You, probably, <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know people saw your dad as Black when you, you know... You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I know people saw my dad as black growing up. So to say that it was indistinguishable is like blowing my mind because it and doesn't see my, my, my baby brother is like, he gets followed around the store or get asked, are you going to buy something at fucking seven 11? Like why the fuck was, would he be at seven 11? Right. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really shocked. Is there any more data around that particular point or it just kind of stops there? Yeah. So, um, again, this is all relative and it's complicated because like people are acting on these biases, even if they don't realize that they have them, right? Like you ask white people, they don't know what the fuck colorism is. Like even sociologists, like when I was in the job market, um, my job talk for people unfamiliar with academic interviewing, they fly you to campus and you, they give, make you give a research talk. My, my talk was about colorism in the 19th century. And um, like people had no idea colorism was right. And these were professional sociologists, some of the best universities in the country. And they would ask me after the talk, like, I didn't even know this was a thing. Right. But people are still acting on these biases. And there are studies that show that even if white people don't know what colorism is, they are still um, they still view lighter skinned black people more favorably than their darker skinned counterparts. And they, they don't necessarily see them as white. Right. But they are seeing them as, you know, people worthy of at least more respect. And they're so there there aren't any more studies about that on um, uh, that say that specific thing about uh, incarceration. But there are some that show a similar thing with um, wages that, again, if you um, control for certain variables here. Um, some studies find that there is no statistically significant difference between the wages of light-skinned Black Americans and white Americans, right? The burden uh, 
skin largely is falling on medium and darker skinned uh, black people. Does that also work for employment numbers? And so for employment numbers, like unemployment and stuff like that. And so like the study that I'm talking about that finds these differences or lack of differences in wages are economists, right? So they are restricting the sample in a specific type of way. You're looking at people who only people who are employed full time and in that specific situation, um, people are experiencing this wage parity. We start looking at it a little bit bigger. There are more, um, again, light-skinned people are still um, advances on these other things, right? Like unemployment and um, promotions and stuff like that. But I mean, it's not to the same extreme. So I mean, on certain measures, light-skinned people are getting the same treatment as white people, but not on all of them. But still, on everything we've looked at, they're getting they're getting better treatment than their darker-skinned counterparts there. I mean, better treatment. I think we all knew that. I don't yeah. think we knew un- indistinguishable. I think. Yeah, that's- yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the that's the, the that's the the big takeaway there. That's the headline. Yeah, because you're still black. At least it, that's what you feel like. You know, at yeah. least that was my assumption. But so, you're still black is I don't know, but blackness is you know self identification, not like you know what I mean. So wait, I have another question. Then yeah. I'm, I'm sorry you you started saying shit, and I got more questions. Go for it. Um, before you even finish whatever the initial point was, and I apologize. When when it comes to like let's say certain statistics that we don't necessarily have the information of color tones, right? I know where you're going with this. But we do have the information of things like education stats and certain things that impact com- communities. So, for example, in a lot of Black communities across the nation and definitely in L.A., you'll find that the life expect- expectancy in the communities that we live in are a lot lower than in other communities, right? Mm-hmm. We have less green space. We have um, schools that are less funded. We have... So, you're, so, you're, so your light skin... And we in we've seen this in our own families where there's ranges of colors within even among siblings, right, with the same parent. Um, so are those numbers also skewed or different as far as the impact of those environmental factors on people with various skin tones? Yeah. So this is an old study, right? And so I, I cited a lot, but it's from the '90s, and this study showed that skin color, skin tone for black people is a stronger predictor of socioeconomic success than your family background, right? Like people are able to overcome like those barriers to a higher degree if they're light skinned. Like social mobility is constant, social social mobility among black people is highly concentrated among those who are light skinned. So when we're starting to uh, measure um, racial outcomes, right? If you're looking at outcomes like income, in a community, like you can bet that you are underestimating how severely the dark skinned people in that community are suffering because light skinned people are dragging up the numbers, right? So we don't even have a great idea, as, as we don't have a, as comprehensive of an idea of how poorly dark skinned people are doing when they're concentrated in, in, in disadvantaged communities because we we have a hard time disaggregating numbers based on color because we don't capture color on things like the city. I am still in so much shock <laughs> because you're saying this, but this, um, 
I want to say almost, this literally goes against a lot of things that even I assumed to be true and things that I believed around color and yeah. skin tones. It's it's literally blowing my mind because I had this assumption that in those pockets, they were still impacted at least somewhat the same because we're all in the same communities. But I did not factor in the social mobility aspect, meaning that they, they're getting out of those. They're getting opportunities because of skin tone, I'm sure. Because I'm sure we can get more in depth into that. In fact, we will. You're a sociologist. One thing I love about sociology, it doesn't just stick to numbers. It also dips a little bit into the psychology of things. <laughs> um, and meaning, basically, we try to answer the question of why we see the patterns that we see, right? Right. Um, but I definitely... I'm I'm still I hate to use the word flabbergasted because it's such a corny word, but I don't know another that's word. That's how you feel. That's how I feel, you know. <laughs> um, that's what's coming to my mind is just flabbergastion. <laughs> <laughs> hey, because... when we blow your mind some more, have me back on to talk about um, body size discrimination. Oh, I want to get into that. That won't surprise me because I've been battling morbid obesity. I used to be well over 300 pounds mm-hmm. and it's something I've been dealing with and I've dealt with a lot in regards to that. And I also found, I've read part of the study because you gave me like six studies. Uh, I read part of one of the studies that you did um, around that actually and colorism, which I thought was fascinating. In fact, we can talk about that a little bit later, but I do want to get into a conversation around um, that topic, around weight discrimination and things like that on another episode specifically. Yeah, but, for sure. Um, but just to get into just a little bit more depth around why we're seeing these patterns, I'm going to give you my guess mm-hmm. and you can let me know. Because when I get these numbers, my first thought goes, why? Right? So I start trying to just mull over some a few hypotheses as to why we see these things. I'm saying hypothesis, hypotheses like I'm actually doing the research. I'm only for people like you to do the research. Um, <laughs> I just I just have the question. Yeah. Um, when I think about so, for example, the example that I gave earlier about things that I witnessed, for example, the light skinned girl. In my experience, both growing up in schools, in, in predominantly black schools, but also. Um, working in schools that were predominantly black or predominantly black and Latino, which is the light skinned girl. I'm saying girl because usually it was a girl. Mm-hmm. It was like the teacher's pet, the one that was doted on. I even had, I think I may have told this story on the Champagne Sharks before, um, which is that I had a situation where I had these volunteers. I was working at a school for Big Brothers Big Sisters in Watts. Um, and that school was predominantly black right across the street from the Jordan Downs housing projects on Grape Street. And you're talking about a very low-income community um, who, during this time, was a lot of things happening. So it's a very stressed-out community. Um, In my after-school program that I was running, I had these the elementary school kids. I had these two little girls that were half black, half Mexican, and one of them had very long, wavy hair. And my volunteers, who were high school students, also from the community, um, came over. They were three dark-skinned girls, very dark-skinned girls. And they came to volunteer, like they always did. And during the homework time, I saw one of them playing in the girl's hair who was half Black, half Mexican, you know, to say, oh, she got good hair. And then saying to her friends, to her dark-skinned friends who also had kinky hair, just like she did, oh, yeah, yeah, she got good hair. Yeah, and they're just going, in front, mind you, in front of all the other children because it's homework time. Um. So I had to stop them and correct them on it and, you know, gave them the spiel about what that means and why that's negative. And they had never heard it before. Never heard it. But I'm watching how that little girl 
was being doted on and favored by the people who were supposed to be encouraging all the children and showing all the children. A... Now, imagine how the little dark skinned girl that was sitting next to her who has short hair felt. Yeah. And how often she sees that happen throughout her day. Yeah. Like, right. Shit. Right. And nobody says anything to her. Right. Right. So imagine how her and her friends are going to feel when the girl who gets doted on is on the playground. Yep. Right. Imagine how that thing, how that girl is going, that girl who was getting doted on, how she's feeling and how she's being treated as a result of the people who are supposed to be encouraging them and giving them a healthy environment. Right. Yeah. She feels so, better, more encouraged about school, more engaged in education. Exactly. Goes on to get more education, get a better exactly. job. Exactly. Her, her experience at school is a lot different mm-hmm. than the other girls who feel neglected or left out. And kids notice these things and they pick up oh, on them definitely. actually a lot quicker than even adults do, right? Yeah. Because uh, they sense it and they're operating out of that part of their brain that's highly sensitive, sensitive to emotions and connecting with others' emotions. That's how they mm-hmm. survive during, that, during their childhood, right? So... When we think about that, that gives credence to why we see, oh, light-skinned people making it out of the... Now, mind you, like I said, they're all in the same community. They're all in Watt. They're all in the projects or next to the projects, right? But now this little girl is feeling more encouraged in the spaces that are meant to push her into higher education or into career paths. Exactly. Yeah. So when we look at the data that is happening in school, this is exactly what's happening. Like students are you know what happens in schools right students that are chosen to be successful students that get on the good side of um of the administration of the faculty right i was one of those students um when i was a kid like those students get extra attention in school which will lead to um a better perception of what school is it will lead to better grades right a more positive orientation towards formal education and uh and so we know that lighter skinned students get called on more in class are perceived as smarter by their teachers in class are punished less often and more lightly than their darker skinned counterparts and all of that stuff goes for um boys and girls and those students go on to achieve more education and you know get better jobs have higher incomes et cetera, et cetera. but like this is all like and that's like the short term um mechanism for some of this stuff but i'm in particular a historical sociologist right so like in my view like this is the end result of a you know um 200 year eugenics project like wait 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 <laughs> go deeper into that point yeah um you ask me everything is eugenics but this is definitely eugenics Ooh. Right? okay so, okay wait a um, minute don't see again dropping bombs and shit relax hold on uh you think everything's eugenics that's an interesting theory and i definitely no, not want literally to, that's, everything right no but, i know you don't mean literally everything yeah. but a lot so a lot. that sounds like another episode as well. But continue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything is eugenics. I should actually change that to the, make that the name of my class. Ooh, I love that. But um, go ahead and um, finish what you were saying. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. So, you know, the term mulatto, right? Um, mixed black and white. Kind of derogatory to call somebody a mulatto. I hate that word so much. I hate but, that word. <laughs> yeah. Mulatto was a category on the census for 80 years. Yeah. Right. From 
1850 census, I think until the 1930 census, right? And it wasn't just about, um, you know, like racialized accounting, right? That's how it ended up on the census. But like that was a part of these debates about how mulattoes would fare in society relative to black people. So some people argued, some race scientists in the 19th century um, argued that mulattoes had white blood. So they would be more industrious and more hardworking and more successful. Wait a minute, hold on. Because you're saying 1800s, but I've seen these, I've seen these categories and I'm sure you've seen them in the Costa paintings, right? Which are the Spanish caste system Mm-hmm. Um, that and it's like all these pictures. I talk about it on here a lot because it's one of those most fascinating things that I've never learned about in school, which was the cost of paintings in, in these racial categories. Yeah. Um, based off of your mix, so they made you a completely different category based off of what you were mixed with and what generation you were in, right? Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting because you brought up the 1800s, but I saw the term mulatto for um yeah i'm just talking about in the united states but this is in what we call the americas now so i'm just wondering how much this how much of what we categorize and even that term mulatto comes from that idea i guess is really what i'm getting at no definitely right like it's like the term is borrowed the ideas are borrowed right and places that had more spanish and french influences had, you know, more complicated color histories in, you know, Louisiana and South Carolina and Florida, et cetera. But specifically the t- mulatto, a mulatto was in that in that caste system actually a part of the upper class. Yeah. If they were mixed with more Los Moros and Spanish. Right. right? And that is the thing. That is the that's the thing, right? So like it, I remember specifically, this was even before the term was on the census, right? Like people already had these ideas that mulattoes were better than regular black people. There was a a legislative, a report from the South Carolina legislature, I think in the late 1820s, that was something like um, uh, mulattoes um, abhor association with the blacks in any enterprise. And as far as I know, they would ally with the whites if it came to race war, right? Like this was like, not only did people think that like mulattoes were better than black people, like they actually genuinely believed the government believed that if it came to it, the mulattoes would be on the white people's side and not the black people's side. And like, and that shows in the numbers, like if you start looking at like 19th century, like slave statistics, um, Mulattoes were much, much more likely to be uh, manumitted, to be freed, and to be free person, people of color. There were, in most places across the South, most of the free Black people were mulattoes. Right there are, mo- in most places in the South, there were no free regular Blacks. I'm not surprised by that in particular, because I feel like I've kind of come across research on that. Mm-hmm. But and I think a, a lot of times your basic black history class will kind of reference that to some degree. Yeah. <clears throat> but I do have this question because there's still so there's in the categorization of mulatto it's considered a group or a class, like a racial class. Right. Yeah. The way we talk about mulatto is usually half black, half white. Mm-hmm. Whereas. Because I kept thinking to myself, I remember one time I was thinking like how whenever you meet a person, nine times out of Nine times out of 10, if they're half black and half white, we, we usually just 
can we can tell that they're black, right? We can tell mm-hmm. that they're half black, right? At the very least, right? Um, or sometimes you can't even tell if they mix it all. <laughs> you just, just think they're black, right? Um, depending on certain phenotypes, like their hair texture and things like that, right? But whenever I would read stories in history, it would be these stories about mulattoes passing for white. Yeah. But that was so wild to me because every time I met a half black, half white person, they looked, they didn't look like they could pass for white. They just looked like mixed. Passing but, is complicated. Okay, so this is what I'm gonna get into. <clears throat> when I when I think of passing, I think of now, I think of white people, I mean black people, people who are born to um maybe even parents who are biracial, who then marry maybe married or had a child with somebody who was Mm-hmm. white right so like sally hemmings was a quarter black right right um but she was still enslaved but her children who were thomas jefferson's children would look white i yeah. could see them passing so were most of the people that were passing um, and identifying as mulatto um were they mostly very little were they mostly like What's the word? Octoroons. Octoroons. <laughs> <laughs> that seems so derogatory too. Yeah, um, so, yeah. I mean, we don't have uh, like you know hard data on who was passing. By the very nature of passing, it's hard to measure that. Um, right. But like, so in the United States, like mulatto is an all-encompassing term that captures you know the quadroons and the octoroons and you know what I mean. All and, that, of and that's kind of my there. question. Yeah. 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 And it was like. And, you know, if you are planning to pass, you don't just get up in the morning and go outside <laughs> looking the way you look. You dress yourself up to make help yourself pass. You know what I mean? You might put on some makeup and you're going to straighten your hair. You're going to want to look like a white person as opposed to somebody on the street who is multiracial, who doesn't really care to do that, might have an Afro. And, you know, they're just going to look how they look. If you, If they want to pass, they would look a little bit different. They're probably um, not going to have twists, big hoop earrings, and baby hair. That's what you're right, saying. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, like, um, like the way we think about color today is uh, a remnant of that type of eugenics era thinking. And so, like, Mulatto got put on the census. And um, one of my favorite stories to tell is how Plessy Burkis Plessy versus Ferguson was a case about color that more than anything else uh, lowered the status <laughs> of mulattoes in the United States and eventually led to um, this system where we talk about race and, you know, we're all black, right? That wasn't the case in the 1800s, right? There was no we're all black. Like mulattoes were mulattoes and blacks were blacks. And Plessy versus Ferguson um was the case that said where the judge, the J- Supreme Court basically said, no, actually, if the state said all of you are black, you all black and you can all get segregated against. Um, what did that benefit? Well, let me ask you this. Was it a benefit for white people to move mulattoes into the Negro category or not or? And was it a detriment having them in the white category? And so, like, basically, it was a way to like maintain these categorical orders. Right. So when during slavery, like black people are slaves and like that is the predominant status of a black person in America. And, like anybody's out of that is understood to be an outlier. Right. Like after emancipation, um, things were different, especially after reconstruction, like white people are trying to pull together some remnants 
of the racialized social order that they had been used to over the previous few centuries. And so um, Jim Crow segregation was one way to do that. Problem is, it's hard to enforce segregation when you don't know who the fuck is black and who isn't because you have this middle category where people can ostensibly escape segregation. And that's what Homer Plessy went to the Supreme Court for. Like he didn't go to the Supreme Court to argue that segregation is immoral and separate um, accommodations are inherently unequal. They went to the Supreme Court to argue that um, there's one quote from uh, his lawyer in particular where he's like um, a busy train conductor doesn't have the, the capability to judge who is white and who is black. And so we shouldn't make them do that in the service of segregation. Where this wasn't an, argue, an argument about morality, it was one, an argument about logistics, and two, an argument where um, the Creole and mulatto communities in Louisiana were trying to maintain the privilege that they had accrued over the past century. Like, have you ever seen a, pic- a picture of Homer Plessy? He was only one-eighth black, right? Look him up when you get a chance. One-eighth black, uh, very, very light-skinned, white-passing man. Like, he was seated in the white train car because they thought he was white. And he went to the court and said, um, if I am viewed as white and given all of the privileges of a white person in society, I should be afforded, you know, I shouldn't be denigrated to the black um to this black status in segregation. And the judge is like, actually, that's not true because you can't make a white person out of a black person, no matter how hard you try. And if the, if the states, uh, states are allowed to determine whether or not you're black and thus whether or not you are subject to racialized segregation. And so the Supreme Court basically said mulattoes are black people. You're part of this segregated class now. And that gave birth to this, um, what people call the one drop rule. That wasn't really a thing before, right? Like they, that idea was born from this Supreme Court case. And he don't that, look black at all. He don't look black at all. And he didn't identify as such. How did they even catch him? He, he, like he was sent there, like this was, he was sent there to deliberately test this case. Like oh. it, wasn't, it wasn't an accident. Like the, the local Creole community <gasps> like got together and were like, we want to challenge this law. Let's send Homer Plessy in there to challenge it. And the fact that he didn't look black and got seated in the white train car was part of his argument. It was like, you can't tell what race I am. And so you don't have the authority to segregate based on race. Wow. So, man, this is so much that I'm learning right now that I thought <laughs> I knew. Um, well, for one, there's just too many things in the world to research. So, oh yeah, <laughs> it's just too, too many things. As somebody but, who wants to learn everything, um, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. But what's really got my wheels turning um, is now about the segregation among Black people based off of light skin and dark skin at a time where you have, like you said, this group of Creole people. Mm-hmm. who I'm guessing have African ancestry mm-hmm. um, are trying to not be black. Right. But it, it it makes me think about specifically the ways that dark skinned black people have been left out of certain opportunities at the hands of light skinned black people, um, especially what people have deemed to be the black elite mm-hmm. and their association with black people. 
Oh my God, did you um you ever read the arguments between Du Bois and Marcus Garvey about no. color? I no, I saw a documentary that referenced it, but I never like went through it. No. Oh my Talk god. Talk to me, I'm man. Gonna, Talk to me. Educate me. I'm gonna write an article about this when I get some time, right? I'm working on the book now. That's not so it'll be a while, but basically, um, Garvey came to the United States to meet with um Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington was already dead. And so Garvey was like, who is leading the charge here? He's like, let me go to the offices of the NAACP, right? And Garvey is like, why the fuck is everybody in the NAACP office um, white or mulatto or light skinned? And he starts calling them out on this and he attacks Du Bois in particular. And Du Bois is like, color is not a problem in the United States. And anybody who seeks to import that problem from the Caribbean will find themselves, um, you know, called crazy or whatever the fuck right like he and he spends like pages in crisis magazine like imagine spending space like imagine this is like oprah being using old magazine to criticize her political opponents you know what i mean like he was right do boys in crisis magazine uh like levying personal insult at at Marcus Garvey, like calling him like a bad businessman, um, and you know, like fat and ugly and shit like that, and like what? Yeah, all for Garvey making a pretty reasonable critique, right? If you look at the founders of the NAACP. It's but white you, and light skin people. So it's so crazy to me. Everything you're saying to me is fucking me up right now. So a long time ago, I had done a certain amount of research on the black elite. Mm-hmm. And of, and part of that did incorporate, because I was actually also interested in the colorism aspect of things after reading certain books and doing certain research, right? What I found to be interesting, and this is where I found myself being sort of trapped even, was... On one hand, you have this group of light-skinned people who are um, exclusive. They don't fuck with dark-skinned black people or dark-skinned or black people who can trace themselves back through slavery. Um, you you see this sort of like pattern of this, right? Yeah. But among this same group, not saying every individual was had this sort of dichotomy, but within yeah. that group. You also have the black people who are talking about black progress and are in positions mm-hmm. of racial, quote unquote, racial progress. Right. Yeah. Um, and some of them, we would say, have got, went hard. And some, we, you know, what I'm saying or, that we uplift as having um, created or yeah, created movements that have brought us the opportunities that we have today. Right. Yeah. Like a Thurgood Marshall, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like Du Bois, like Huey Newton, like Angela Davis, like Malcolm X. E- exactly, but I don't even want to go that far ahead into the '60s. I, I mean, mm-hmm. this—I mean, just even going back through early 1900s, late 1800s, right? Yeah. Um, and how? And I'm saying that particular era only because because it does go into the '50s and '60s. In fact, some of the research I did um, was kind of around that era and how the black elite. And then the black middle class trying to be a part of the elite sort of thing, um, which I also thought was really fascinating, the class systems within the black community. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but many of these same light-skinned black people in this earlier era were also fa- founders or co-founders or their names are a part of the building of black colleges. Yeah. Right? So yeah. how do you how do you... How do you sort of balance that in your in your mind as a person who has all the data and research? We have the people who created opportunities um, for whatever their intentions were mm-hmm. and the people who were like at, at the same time. Some of them, if you look at a lot of the uh, black 
Greek societies, if you look at some of the history of some of these black colleges, they were exclusive yeah, to yeah, light yeah. skin black people, right? So how do you balance that though? The progress think, versus the exclusivity? Yeah. So I think what it is, it's complicated. Like history is complicated, right? And so like so there were like black leaders like Du Bois who loved one drop rule. You know what I mean? Um, because they argued that the black community needed to be united to fight the evils of racial segregation. And I would argue that they weren't wrong, right? So like this, these one drop rules, and people talk about this as if it's a permanent thing. And the first one didn't emerge until like 1910, right? So uh, very recent, right? Um, and so like this unified, we're all black thing that we still have going today, like it's part of what led us to fight and to the extent that we won anything in the 60s, right? Like fight and win those battles without the type of internal conflicts um, that would have been born if mulatto and black had remained separate classes, right? Like that unification was valuable. The problem, I think, is where we fell apart in not combating the colorism that was inherent in that system. And so like when opportunities opened up in the 70s and in the 80s, who was poised to take advantage of those opportunities because they had already had, you know, generations of family going to college and that type of shit. You know what I mean? When the government's like, hey, we try to hire a bunch of Negroes in the early 80s. It's a bunch of black, a bunch of light skinned black people who had been going to Howard for four generations, you know, and and some people argue I wouldn't necessarily. But I mean, other people know better than me that that's one of the things that distinguishes the black American uh, civil rights movements from si similar racial movement in Latin America that the 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 colorism system like this spectrum without the sharp demarcations of race like made it harder to unify racially with when people are constantly trying to escape their racial identity in some way over the generations um and so yeah so we definitely benefited from this from those people, those founders, right? Those light-skinned people. And we benefited from this, um, you know, this flattened collective Black identity in the United States that captures all of these different people because we were able to organize around the Black identity to get things done in a way that I don't think we would have been able to do if people were still trying to maintain the specific privileges that they had accrued from being uh, mulatto. I mean, so now there has to be a distinction made, or at least we have to discuss uh, the way this has been distinguished, which is um, being mulatto or part of the mulatto class versus just being lighter skin toned. And the reason yeah. why I say that is because, like I said before, we can have siblings <laughs> that are, you know, all same mother yeah. and father, but three different shades, right? Um, yeah. We have cousins that, you know, they are lighter than us, but not because they're mixed in any way. They're just light, yeah. right? How do we then, it's kind of hard to, to um, unite around a skin tone when your brother is a different tone. <laughs> so how do yeah. we, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say that I don't think it's necessary to, like not every social movement has to be fought the same way, right? So like, I don't think it's necessary to, like, I don't, I don't think like dark skinned unity is necessary <laughs> to combat colorism in the same way that black unity is necessary to combat structural racism in the United States. Like there's a, a different mechanism 
to deploy there because you, we are living in the same house with these people. There are parents, right? And there are cousins, you know what I mean? So it's like a different, is a, is a different system involved and we need a different ways of fighting. But that's one of the things that makes it so hard to legislate. Um, because when you're talking about race and we're talking about um, data, right? We collect race data. We collect race data on everything. Like you can go to the census and go to your neighborhood track and see exactly how many niggas live there. You know what I mean? And so like when you want to distribute resources to help communities that have been disadvantaged by race, like even if you don't want to do it by race, you can say, let me give um, a clinic to this community. You know what I mean? But you can't do that when we're talking about color. And so it's a harder problem to deal with for all the reasons you just discussed. Um, It's messy. And so even though it is devastating in its effects, such a difficult problem to tackle and is made messier by the fact that like you know this is, this is the family all right y'all so that is the end of part one go to again patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two be good